Well, I'm sure that uh, all of you this week, as you kind of come together, as is the case every single week, we come together from different places of geography. We come together from different points of experience over the course of this past week. We carry different burdens. We are grappling with different points of confusion or concern. We all come together uh, for our times of fellowship and study of God's Word. And I'm, I'm quite confident that all of you came today bringing all of your diverse concerns and burdens and needs for encouragement, hoping that I would do a deep dive on Trinitarian theology. I, I know that that's what you were thinking. You are thinking, I hope that he really geeks out on the Trinity today. That's actually a little bit of what we're going to do, but hopefully I will be able to uh, draw out why this is uh, important and significant for us. Um, as, I'm, as I alluded to last week, um, it does flow out of this text, and I, I feel like sometimes when we come across certain passages in the flow of our study of 1 Corinthians, uh, there are certain texts, there are certain passages that... I think, tend to warrant a little bit of a deeper dive, a little further exploration. Possibly there's some sort of controversy that swirls around a particular interpretive element of a passage, or possibly there's a a salient and timely cultural matter that a particular text really sort of presses in upon and kind of compels us to maybe do a little bit of a side study and kind of dive deeply into that. And so I, I think that this particular passage uh, raises that up, as I alluded to last week. But I invite you to go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And just to uh, remind us of the broader study that we've been in for a number of weeks, clearly what we note in this particular passage, despite some of its peculiarities and despite some of its uh, complexity as it deals with Uh, cultural issues related to head coverings and head coverings for women in the life of the worship of the church and uh, hair lengths and and these kinds of things, what we can clearly ascertain and what we've tried to sort of unpack um, with a, a fair amount of detail is this overarching concern that the Apostle Paul is raising in this passage about the distinctive and more importantly, the God-ordained, God-designed distinctions between men and women, and how those distinctions are manifest within the context of the local church, and in particular within the context of the gathered assembly for times of worship. And this principle, this crucial principle that we are called to understand the Apostle Paul references in verse 3, is a principle pertaining to headship and submission. It is is a principle that is a defining principle about the nature or the roles and functions of men and women, and it brings to bear with explicit reference this idea of the head or headship, and certainly by inference, the principles of submission. So you have authority and submission and men and women as the, the focal point, the locus of this particular, this particular text that's on display. And as we noted, this is a principle that the Apostle Paul is intent on us understanding. He says, I want you to understand this principle of headship. And he, he highlights how this flows out. The head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God, right there in chapter 11, verse 3. Now, Paul's reference, as we've said before, to the Godhead in this particular passage, and particularly in verse 3, forms what really is the cornerstone of his overarching argument. This is something that it's almost as though it's a a bit of a a, a drop-the-mic kind of phrase in the the span of of the total argument. And it really is a way of the Apostle Paul conveying that men and women, though equal in essence, equal in ontological essence, equal in substantive being, in the same way that Christ and God are equal in ontological essence, in essential being, even though that is fundamentally and forever true, 
that men and women are nonetheless distinct in role and function. In the same way, or in a comparative way, if you will, that God the Son has distinctive roles in his personhood from that of God the Father. And in fact, you could carry that that comparison out even further, that to the extent that those distinctions are not embraced and carried out, that that is a diminishment of God's good design as it relates to the functioning of men and women in society, and in particular in the church. But if you apply that to the Godhead, imagine if the Son did not submit to the Father's will in becoming a substitute for the sins of men and women so that we might be found in Christ and thereby be His righteousness and be able to stand before God in Christ, holy and blameless. This goes at the fundamental characteristics of the atonement, this principle of authority and submission. So the Apostle Paul raises up this reference to the Godhead, and it, as I said, it forms a cornerstone of the overall argument, the overall instruction that's flowing out of this. And of course, he moves into this customary practice that he is calling on the Corinthian believers to display. It, it works itself out in the form of customs that, are, that were uh, uh, salient in their particular day, this matter of head coverings. We talked at length about some of those cultural realities and things associated with um, women and hair, hair being put up, hair being covered, hair being down, what that might mean. In a first century context, the associations of God's people with any form of pagan worship or pagan practice, all these things are sort of, uh, sort of interwoven into these customs, this custom that's being uh, utilized by the Apostle Paul to instruct the Corinthians about the ways in which they need to be manifesting openly and, and obviously the distinctions between men and women. The, the, the principle here is that there should not be a blurring of the lines between men and women, even so far as it is reflected in outward customs that delineate between men and women. Things like outward appearance and how we adorn ourselves and dress and these kinds of things. In this particular case, we dealt at length with this matter of head coverings and some of the, the potential cultural realities that could have been uh, in, in view as the Apostle Paul was writing this. And we can't be dogmatic about all the things we talked about, of course, because there's just not a lot of detail around it. But nevertheless, this is about, this is about our customs and our practices reflecting what is fundamentally true about the distinctions that we have as men and women. And we shouldn't be doing anything in our practice and in our customs that would blur those lines or would cause really that would cause confusion either internally or, more importantly, those that might come into our midst who are maybe not believers or who the Lord's sort of drawing to himself, and they're trying to get a picture of what God's people look like and act like. You don't want anything to, to cause confusion in the hearts and minds of new believers or unbelievers who the Lord might be drawing to himself and bring into your midst. And that particular idea will be carried out even going forward in chapters 12 through 14 as he deals with this matter of the functioning of spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. That's one of his primary calls of concern in that section, is that there wouldn't be confusion. If an unbeliever comes into your midst, you don't want them to be confused about what's going on in here. So apply that same principle to the to the outward customs, the outward practices that would communicate a clear message of distinction, that this body of believers understands how God has made them as male and female and what he has called them to in the carrying out of their God-given, God-designed functions and responsibilities. And then we looked at this complementary purpose that we're called to embrace, verses 7 to 12, dealing with head coverings, but more specifically dealing with God's created design. And we noted how this, this forms what are fundamental components of what we understand as the complementary view of men and women 
It's the complementary view that would characterize our church's doctrinal conviction around these matters, that, that men and women, though equal in essence and ontological state before God, as created in his image, nonetheless, we have distinctive roles that do involve headship or authority and submission, willing, glad, joyful submission, according to God's design and as unto the Lord. And that as we carry out those roles, it forms what is a, a beautiful picture of complementary interdependence. And this is rooted not in culture, but it's rooted in creation. That's the point of these verses in verses 7 to 12. That these distinctions are not just some kind of uh, relic of an, an archaic first century cultural context. But these distinctions, these roles and these responsibilities are rooted in the very purpose and design of God's pre-fall created order, which he described as very good. So we need to embrace these complementary purposes that God has called us to, recognizing his wisdom and his goodness in all of it. And then finally, we looked at two more quick principles at the end of our time last week that that there's a natural conclusion that we're to draw, and this is just where the Apostle Paul in verses 13 to 15 appeals to nature and speaks about hair length, and we kind of tease that out a little bit, pardon the pun, get it, teasing hair, get it, ladies would know that. Anyway, uh, uh, I didn't do that on purpose, that just came out. Um, but, but, but pointing to the distinctions of a woman's hair as being long and adorning her with, with a, a form of glory, And we talked about the distinctions between, even the the, the natural or physiological distinctions between men and women as it relates to hair, and that women have both the inclination and the physiological capacity, most women do anyway, to sustain a fuller head of hair longer than men. That's like a physiological reality. It's a hormonal reality. And so the Apostle Paul is just sort of making an observation. He's calling them. He says, judge for yourselves. He says, just look around. Pay attention to what you can naturally observe is the idea. And you'll see that this entire argument that I'm making, this entire instruction that I'm giving you, is even borne out by just some natural observation. You'll be able to see it. So there's a natural conclusion that he's calling us to draw. And then finally, a contentious attitude that we're called to reject. And he just concludes this section by saying, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So anyone that would sort of look at this instruction and say, yeah, I'm not, I'm not on board, or, or that's just not for me, or that seems too confining, or, or whatever it might be, just note that you're not just standing against some you know, peculiar, arcane line of thinking of the Apostle Paul as he's trying to hem the Corinthian believers in, what he's saying is is that, no, you're actually coming against the New Testament doctrines of the Apostles that has been communicated and is being practiced among all the New Testament churches. This is a broader, more substantive matter, and a contentious attitude toward it is something that we are called to reject here. So today, I want to move forward with some of this unpacking of these, this reference, this foundational sort of cornerstone reference to the Godhead in the Apostle Paul's argument that we see there in chapter 11, verse 3. It's, it's this foundational verse, it's foundational to the entirety of Paul's instruction on these divine distinctions between men and women and how those distinctions should be manifestly obvious in the outworking of life and ministry and worship within the local church. He says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. There it is in verse 3. And as we've been discussing at length over the past several weeks, this does introduce this principle of headship and submission. And of course, the application, as we've talked about, is primarily the application of the corresponding roles of men and women as created by God in his image with clearly distinctive roles and responsibilities in the church. But it's this reference to the headship and submission roles within the Godhead that I believe warrants some some specific attention, and that's what I want to spend some time on today. It is, after all, this question... What is the actual nature of God's headship and the Son's submission to it 
It's, it's that question that bubbled up into what became a very substantial and even at times very heated debate a few years ago amongst some very prominent conservative theologians and teachers that are within the complementarian camp. So a few years ago, there was a debate that emerged where you might say uh, soldiers in arms became at odds with one another. Theological soldiers in arms started doing battle against one another, and it centered around an understanding of this particular passage and the application or the understanding of the relationship between the persons of the Godhead, and it, w- it emerged initially around discussions about complementarian roles of men and women. So it, it's definitely relevant to the study that we have been in for the last number of weeks. Now, as I said, kind of alluded to in my little uh, introductory remarks, I did have to ask myself, why take all of you down a path of sort of nerding out on Trinitarian theology. Uh, The question is, will any of you or should any of you really care about this? Sometimes you have a teacher that might come along and they have a certain pet doctrine or maybe they've been immersed in a particular stream of study and they just can't wait to tell everybody about it. And so whether it's practicable or applicable or, you know, timely or even needful for the people they're teaching, that's really not the point. The point is, let me tell you what I've been studying. It's awesome. You're going to love it just because I love it kind of thing. So I had to wrestle with this a little bit because I, I, definitely, I definitely understand that the purpose of our gathering here on Sunday mornings is, is theological in its orientation and it's doctrinal in its, its foundation, but it's ultimately so that we can know what God says and what he means by what he says so that we then know how we are to live according to it. So I want to make sure that we, we sort of attach this kind of study to these practical working out Uh, priorities. And in thinking about that, I was reminded of a profound excerpt from a Spurgeon sermon, a Charles Spurgeon sermon, uh, that is, you can find, I guess, a large portion of this. I can't remember how much of this is quoted, but a good portion of it, maybe all of the the quote that I have here. It's quoted at the beginning of J.I. Packer's classic book, Knowing God. The very first chapter, you'll find a reference to this Charles Spurgeon sermon. The title of the sermon is The Immutability of God. This was the sermon that Spurgeon preached on January 7th, 1855. And listen to what Spurgeon says about this subject of the Godhead. He says, It has been said by some that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, We turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild ass's colt. And with the solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. We shall be obliged to feel, great God, how infinite art thou, what worthless worms are we. And then he goes on and listen to some of the practical implications he refers to. He says, but while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. 
He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. He may be a naturalist, boasting of his ability to dissect a beetle, anatomize a fly, or arrange insects and animals in classes with well-nigh unutterable names. He may be a geologist, able to discourse of the Megatherium and the Plesiosaurus and all kinds of extinct animals. He may imagine that his science, whatever it is, ennobles and enlarges his mind. I dare say it does. But after all, the most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect. Nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And whilst humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. Listen to this. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. End quote. By the way, the man was 20 years old when he preached that sermon. 20. Very humbling. So it's because of that that I think this is worth our time. I think sometimes we shy away from some of these more nuanced or challenging contemplations of the character and nature and being of God. But when you think about it in light of what Spurgeon said, hopefully it draws us in to recognize the importance of it, that we might pursue it with vigor. As we said last week from this overall study in chapter 11, verses 2 to 16... It's it's that Paul is rooting his argument for divine distinctions between men and women. He's rooting it in creation and not in culture. And the fact is that this gives tremendous strength to the complementarian view, as we talked about last week, for rather obvious reasons. Primarily, that male headship and female submission is essential to God's very good pre-fall design. And conversely, it is not a mere relic of an ancient patriarchal culture that we have somehow progressed beyond, you know, in our 21st century, you know, advancement and knowledge. We're we're inhabitants of a modern, contemporary, and we think enlightened, more enlightened society. And so we could believe that somehow this particular view of men and women and authority and submission and all these arcane ideas are just relics of an ancient time, but But the fact that the Apostle Paul roots it in creation gives strength to the complementarian argument and the complementarian view. But imagine how much stronger that argument becomes if not only it's rooted in creation, but it's also rooted in the eternal ontological essence of the Godhead. Now you're talking. Come at me with your faulty rebuttals if that's where I'm rooting the nature of my view. So the argument goes something like this. The argument of rooting complementarian male and female roles and responsibilities as designed by God, rooting that not just in creation, but in the Godhead, it might go something like this. We all know the incarnate Son, the incarnate Son of God, submits to the Father. We understand that. We have explicit passages of Scripture that speak to that. But his submission... Also, this argument would go, it also extends to his eternal role in relationship as the Son. So in other words, the Son is subordinate to the Father from all eternity. Okay, so you're tracking with me. We're not just talking about a submissive posture 
a submissive role that is worked out in the incarnation of the Son as he fulfills the Father's will as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. But that this, this relationship of subordination or submission of the Son to the Father is an eternal, essential characteristic of the Godhead in their relations. It precedes in eternity past the incarnation, and it extends beyond into eternity future, this authority and submission relationship. There is, therefore, the argument would go on, that authority and submission within the inner life of the Trinity, even before creation and redemption, like I just said. So, this principle of authority and submission between men and women was essential to God's created design because it is essential to his eternal triune nature. That's how the argument would go. It's upping the ante, in other words. Creation, pre-fall creation, is a strong argument. But if you get above pre-fall creation into the eternal relations of the Father and the Son, and you say that the, and you argue that God created man and women, men and women, and designed them in this authority and submission relationship because it is reflective of his essential relationship between father and son that has been a part of his nature for eternity. You're talking about an an argument that you can't surmount if if you oppose it, if you would accept that argument to be true. This principle of authority and submission between men and women, as I said, was essential to God's created design because it is essential to his eternal triune nature. That's a strong argument for complementarianism. So this view was being forwarded or advanced by such prominent theologians as Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware. A little bit of context there. Wayne Grudem's systematic theology is sort of the, it's the premier the, uh, systematic theology textbook for like-minded seminaries, you know, across the country. I mean, this is like a, a mainstay. It's on my bookshelf. It's on our pastors. I mean, it's, it's, it's Wayne Grudem systematic theology is a go-to. We wouldn't agree with everything that Wayne Grudem espouses doctrinally, but, but nevertheless, he's a, he's a, a robust and, and very reputable uh, theologian. Here's something that Wayne Grudem advanced about this nature of authority and submission between the Father and the Son. He says this, quote, What we have in the biblical text is a Father who plans, initiates, sends, commands, and delegates authority to the Son. We have a Son who joyously agrees with, responds to, receives, carries out, and obeys these directives of the Father. Quite simply, we have authority and submission to authority in the relationship of sinless divine persons. And then Bruce Ware, another conservative, like-minded theologian in many respects, said this, because the Father is eternal Father of the eternal Son, the Father always acts in ways that befit who who He distinctively is as Father, such that, among other things, He eternally possesses and expresses fatherly authority. The Son, as the eternal Son of the eternal Father, correspondingly, always acts in ways that befit who He distinctively is as Son, such that, among other things, He eternally possesses and expresses a submission to act gladly and freely as agent of the Father. So, Bruce Ware takes this a step further and says that you have an eternal Father and an eternal Son And the nature of fatherhood and sonship necessarily includes a relationship of authority and submission amongst these eternal persons in the one true God. Tracking with me? Nobody's glossed over too much yet. So so that's sort of of the nature of this eternal sonship kind kind of argument. And again, both of these men are very prominent uh, representatives of the complementarian view of men and women. 
So a lot of what they were articulating or, or the initiation of some of this doctrinal conviction around the eternal nature of the father and son in their relationship was borne out in the context of discussions about men and women. Now, as you might imagine, this debate that emerged back in 2016 uh, very quickly began to center not so much around men and women, but around the nature of the Trinity. That became the focal point of the debate. And just to be clear, the doctrine of the Trinity is a first order of first order doctrinal issue for believers. Even though there is no shortage of mystery and even unfathomable characteristics around the very nature of the triune God, the three in one. I mean, there's things that we'll never be able to fathom. We'll address that in a moment. Nonetheless, to be, to be a Bible-believing Christian is to be Trinitarian in your understanding of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So it, it warrants us pressing in and doing work to think carefully about these matters, and when, and when debates and discussions emerge from people of substance who have been characteristically sort of like-minded in many ways, it, it warrants our attention to sort of grapple with some of it. Now, this position that I kind of gave you a bit of a cursory overview of, this position about the eternal nature of the father and son relationship of, of uh, authority and submission... It's referred to technically as eternal functional submission or eternal functional subordination of the Son to the Father, or EFS, if you're looking for acronyms. I know that those of you who work in corporate America, like, you, can only, you only know how to talk in acronyms, so there's your theological acronym, EFS. Or another reference of the same, same principle is eternal submission of the Son, so you have eternal functional submission or eternal submission of the Son, or ESS, if you like that acronym better. Or if you're more inclined toward a four-letter acronym, you could go with eternal relations of authority and submission, or ERAS, or ERAS, E-R-A-S. And these, this position that was put forward, we'll just call it, we'll just call it EFS, functional submission, eternal functional submission, just for our purposes. This position that was put forward was viewed by several notable opponents, and I mean several, as really pushing the limits of historic Trinitarian Nicene Orthodoxy. Those are some $40 words that we'll talk about here in just a second. What What I'm getting at is that you have men who have been notable sound-minded, highly respected, uh, highly regarded theologians, conservative theologians, who are now being accused of heresy. Okay? That's that's how heated this debate got. Uh, of, Of breaching foundations of Orthodox Trinitarian theology that goes back to the 4th and 5th centuries that were settled at the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Chalcedon. So we're talking about, in, in sort of the theological world, we're talking about a pretty significant fight that, that brewed. All right? Yes, I probably won't know the answer, but go ahead. Yeah, I'll kind of unpack that a little bit. The accusations of heresy were, I think, a characteristic of, you know, uh, Twitter rant kind of climate more than substantive. They were unfounded, and they were unwarranted, and they were extreme. But I'm just trying to articulate that it got to that point where there was accusations of heresy of, it'd be like saying, yeah, did you guys hear that John MacArthur is now a heretic? Did you hear that? Uh, he's, um, I mean, we're talking about excommunicable infraction here. We're not talking about, like, 
little nuance of belief about this particular doctrine or that particular doctrine. It got to that level. But I, I'm not, it wasn't founded. The accusations weren't founded, I don't, I don't believe. It's, it's still going on now. In fact, I'm going to give you guys a reference point if you want to go deeper. Uh, that you can, there's, a, there's a great uh, a seminar online that, that is really clear and really well done. And it's not too pedantic and, you know, ethereal in terms of theological reference points or whatever. It's very accessible. So I, I'm going to give you that. Uh, remind me to give you that, uh, that, 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 uh, the title of that seminar before we leave here. Nevertheless, these accusations persisted, and it's centered around, in some sense, it's centered around this idea of, of breaching or, or sliding into what was called the Arian controversy. That's one sort of, uh, one sort of characteristic, the Arian controversy that led to the Council of Nicaea. So you had, in the 4th and 5th centuries, some really... Uh, divergent views about the nature of the Son and the Father and the Spirit and how they work and what the relationship is and how we're to understand the passages of Scripture that speak to that, such that you had to have these councils come together and sort of settle these issues because they got way off track. For example, just reading a little bit of a summary of the Arian controversy, in the 4th century, Numerous Christological errors arose and required an extensive defense from Christian leaders. The first major error was Arianism. Arius, a presbyter in Alexandria, began teaching in 313 that the Son was created rather than being co-equal, the co-equal eternal Son. His reference point was that is what it means to be begotten. To be the eternal begotten Son of God is a reference point to origin. There was a time when he wasn't, and then a time when he was, when he was begotten. And so this was Arius putting forward in circles of what would be considered Orthodox Christianity, this kind of understanding of the nature of the Son of God. According to Arius and his followers, Jesus was a created being, not ontologically equal to the Father. To help spread this teaching, he even wrote out songs which incorporated his belief about Christ, stating, quote, there was a time when he was not, end quote. The church dealt with this error at the Council of Nicaea in 325, a council called by the Emperor Constantine. They declared that Jesus is, quote, begotten, not made, light from light, true God from true God, and of one being or essence with the Father. Using the word homoousios, from the Greek homo same, ousia, substance, of the same substance, to describe the relationship of essence between Son and Father. So this, the, the, these references to to Arianism, and the reason why I'm telling you this is if you, if you look at this, if you start reading this, you'll see references to Nicaea and Chalcedon and Arianism and these kinds of things. So I want you to at least have a little bit of a framework for what, what's being discussed here. Now, there are th- these accusations, as I alluded to just a moment ago, of this sort of anti-Nicene heresy or you know, uh, Arian heresy, that have been leveled against some of these guys, like Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware, they're definitely extreme and unwarranted. Both of these guys would not say that Jesus, being the begotten Son of God, was born at some point or came into existence at some point. They fully, in a full-throated way, articulate the eternal existence and co-equal essence of the Father with the Son. That's why I say it's just like it's a... It's, an, it's a pejorative sort of, you know, Twitter, blogosphere, rant kind of accusation, probably just to kind of, you know, be extreme or hyperbolic in, in the argument. But nevertheless, there are some crucial weaknesses in this eternal, in my, in my estimation, there are some crucial weaknesses in this eternal functional subordination view where the son is eternally submissive to the Father, and the Father is eternally in authority over the Son. There there are some crucial weaknesses in this position that in some ways leave that position open to this kind of criticism 
Because the position certainly can sort of tilt or lean toward some of these more heretical views. In other words, the the logical argumentation that sort of can flow out of these views can sort of, you can slide into a more heterodox, a more heretical view. And so it's sort of, they're they're exposed to that kind of of critique um, by virtue of their, their argument. Now, before we kind of move a little bit further, is everybody with me, by the way? Just, just give me a courtesy nod. Say, yes, yeah, we're, all, we're all okay. Okay. So, we have to recognize that we have tremendous limitations when we think about these things. British theologian and writer Alistair Roberts says this, quote, A robust Trinitarian theology will constantly expose the limits of our language and concepts of God and resist any straightforward reading back of God's accommodated self-revelation in the context of a fallen creation into his eternal being. God surpasses our understanding, our language, and our concepts. So we're trying to put language and human words around the eternal... Not only that, we're trying to put human language and words that are flowing out of a comprehensive existence in limited time and space, and we're trying to thrust these descriptive terms into the eternal realm and existence of the Godhead. So hopefully that articulates a bit of a limitation that we have. Albert Moeller says this, we lack adequate human categories for our understanding how exactly to define these doctrines comprehensively. God has not revealed some answers to us, and our finite minds cannot fully comprehend the infinite divine reality. Okay? That's kind of like a no-duh kind of statement, right? Now, Athanasius, the Athanasian Creed in 500 AD says this, We worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. The, the, the early debates around this particular Trinitarian issue, this, this understanding of what Scripture teaches about God in three persons, yet one God, are, are, are basically broken down into sort of two ways to think about God as Trinity, you have what is referred to as the imminent trinity, and then you have what is referred to as the economic trinity. The imminent trinity, we're not talking about two different you know, types of trinity, we're talking about two ways to understand or think about the triune God. And, and God in his imminent trinitarian work, it, that, the, that deals with questions of who God is, of his essence, of his being. It's like, How do you describe the very essence and being of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit? That's what we're referring to when we say imminent trinity. The economic trinity is the more practical considerations of what God does and how you're to understand the relationship as revealed in Scripture of Father, Son, and Spirit. How we're to understand what God has revealed about himself and probably most importantly for us anyway, is how this revelation of God and how the, the understanding of what God has done in the persons of Father, Son, and Spirit, how that works itself out in redemption, in, in, the, in the redeeming of us from darkness into light, from death into life. And what, what the concluding characteristics are between these two sort of frames of thought about the Trinity is that whether you're, whether you're thinking about God in his essence as triune or God in his outworking as triune, Father, Son, and Spirit, you have essential co-equality between the persons. Fundamental, essential co-equality. No distinction of essential station, if you will. Yet you do have personal distinctions. Essential co-equality with personal distinctions. It's important to note, because we've been kind of talking about creedal you know, realities and, and councils that took place in past centuries and 
And we've been using sort of theological terminology up to this point, but it's important for us to realize that the doctrine of the Trinity is not creedal fundamentally. Our our understanding of the Trinity doesn't have to necessarily flow from a reading of creeds that came out of, you know, theological councils. Our understanding of the Trinity is a biblical exercise, a biblical pursuit. Martin Luther says, Scripture clearly proves that there are three persons and one God. For I would believe neither the writings of Augustine nor the teachers of the church unless the New and Old Testaments would clearly show this doctrine of the Trinity. So we want to, we want to have our understanding of the nature of, of the Godhead, the triune God, flow out of what Scripture has clearly revealed And we want to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to venture off into wild speculation on the fringes of what God has not revealed. Just for the sake of our own intellectual exercise or for some other nefarious reason, like maybe we want to sound smarter than other people or maybe we're just, you know, we're not, we'd rather focus on, you know, arcane or obscure theological matters than deal with matters of practical obedience and doing the things that we know we need to be doing right now. We'd rather just sort of contemplate our navels than to just be faithful, you know, men and women of the church and men and women of God and working out what God has clearly revealed to us about who he is and what he's called us to. There's all kinds of reasons why people will go off into fanciful theological thought exercises, and one of them that has been always the case is that you have people that that can wow you with uh, you know obscure theological you know concepts and ideas and what you end up finding out is man they're brilliant but they're unfaithful to their spouse wow they really understand the trinity but they're completely addicted to alcohol or whatever i mean it's like such a a, con- a conflict we don't want to be characterized by those who find ourselves drifting off into speculative theological musings and get distracted from what god has clearly called us to as his people okay so what we know from scripture god is one deuteronomy 6:4 hear o israel the lord our god the lord is one New Testament, Mark chapter 12, verses 29 to 31. When asked about the the law, Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The The second is this, You shall love your neighbors yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus himself, the incarnate Son, espouses the very statement that Moses espoused in Deuteronomy chapter 6 about the oneness of God. Can't slip into tritheistic kinds of thinking about the nature of the Godhead. There is the oneness of God. There is this essential co-equality with God where each person of the Trinity, according to the book Biblical Doctrine, each person of the Trinity possesses the entire simple, undivided essence of God. This this fact means that the three persons, though distinct from one another, are co-equal in every perfection of the divine essence. So in other words, as you are thinking about, as you are interacting with, as you are praying, as you are studying, and you're contemplating the God that you worship, the God that you relate to, the God who saved you, in the persons of the Trinity... Guard yourself from thinking that somehow Father, Son, Spirit are sort of in different levels of rank or anything like that. There is essential co-equality. And yet, as we said, there are these personal distinctions. In Scripture, the Father has attributes of personal, of paternity, with respect to the Son, of fatherhood with respect to the Son. In the Son, Scripture attributes pers- the personal property of filiation or sonship to Him with respect to the Father. In the Holy Spirit, Scripture attributes the personal property of spiration or procession, proceeding forth 
to him with respect to the Father and the Son. So these are distinctions in the persons of the Godhead, but they are co-equal in essence. Athanasian Creed again says, The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created, nor begotten, but proceeding. Now, I would say that if you're like me, which, you know, in some ways you probably just shouldn't be at all, but if you're like me in this particular regard, uh, that it, it, in, in terms of just grasping this in, in, a, in sort of a logical, practical kind of way, it's a little easier to get your mind around the, the, the spirit proceeding forth versus this relationship of father and son, of paternity and sonship, and, and what that's about. Or more specifically, sort of the linchpin um, uh, error, the word, the term, the concept that led to Arius' heresy, this term or this concept of being begotten, the son being begotten of the father. So the spirit proceeding forth is a little easier to kind of get your head a little bit around, even though there's mystery and a little bit of you know, complexity around that. But, but this, this thing of begotten, if it doesn't mean that the son was born of the father, because, of course, that's what we know, right? When we think of a father and a son, not only do we think of it in terms of authority and submission, but we think of it as progeneration, Right? We think of it as the son being born of the father. So how are we to understand this a little more clearly? This gets into what is called eternal generation. Eternal generation. Now, th- these, this is not easy stuff to really fully get our heads around. But, but this is what we're talking about. The essence of the father-son relationship or reference point in terms of their personhood identification, identification of father and son as distinct persons within the single Godhead. This this is what one theologian says, God the Father eternally and by necessity generates or begets God the Son in such a way that the substance or the divine essence of God is not divided. There is... In other words, in the Godhead, a generation of the Son from the Father, but it's eternal generation. Again, limitations, right? I am trying to describe to you in limited human language characteristics of eternal divine essence. Please no follow-up questions. I, I, I can't tell you that I fully understand it. But there is this, this, this principle, it seems, of an eternal generation of, son, of the Son from the Father. And yet, they're co-equally eternal in their essence. There is no starting point of the Son that begins in a birth kind of way that we would think of a father-son-human dynamic. Louis Burkhoff says this, It is that eternal and necessary act of the first person in the Trinity whereby he, within the divine being, is the ground of a second person, of a second personal subsistence like his own, and puts this second person in possession of the whole divine essence without any division, alienation, or change. Even reading that, what I am hearing is finite language trying to describe the infinite. I don't know if you can pick up on that, but it still has a ring of a starting point. So, again, we don't have language or concept to get around this. These are just efforts of, of theologians holding true to co-equal substance of Father, Son, and Spirit, not diminishing one in relationship to the other, and yet taking what Scripture describes and trying to put human words to sort of characterize it in a way that might start to make some sort of sense. 
Now let's think about the biblical references to this this principle of eternal generation. And I'm going to have to move quickly, although I'm getting close to the end. Okay, we've got nine minutes, okay. So I'm going to rapid fire through these. John 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. This is a reference to the Son being God with the Father at his side and who has also made the Father known. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 5.26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. John 14, 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. This is Jesus speaking. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. John 17, 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance, speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now there's interweavings of all of these concepts with the actual incarnation where God, the Son, actually becomes man. He takes on flesh. He takes on human nature and, become, and, and fully God becomes fully man. This mystery of the incarnation is sort of also woven into these, these passages. That's why it's, you, know, you, you have limits. You can't, really un, you can't untangle all this and say, oh, that just makes perfectly logical sense. By the way, think of it this way. The moment you find yourself arriving at a point where you feel like you've been able to fully explain God you no longer are worshiping the God who made you. You understand me? (laughs) I mean, this idea of the the atheist saying, as soon as God proves himself to me, then I will believe in him, that is an acknowledgement of their own self-idolatry. The only God that I will bend the knee to is a God that me and my human, fallen, corrupt intellect can completely encircle with my knowledge and draw, according to my own sense of reason, a conclusion that that is indeed God. So I would say the same thing is true for us in our grappling with the Trinity. There are limits to this. And what I hope is one of the outcomes of our contemplation of this is worship and awe. That's worthwhile in and of itself. For us to be filled with a sense of wonder at who this triune God actually is. And that this God of such magnificent eternal scope and essence has condescended to make himself known to us. This is what Philippians 2 is kind of drawing us into. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, even though he was in every way God. You have the eternal generation of the Son from the Father, and then you have this idea of eternal spiration of the Spirit proceeding forth from the Father and the Son. John 14, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John 15, 26, but when the helper comes, the spirit whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, there the, uh, he will bear witness about me. So that's the idea of eternal spiration, eternal proceeding forth of the spirit. Now, I've got a few minutes just to sort of wrap some of this up. And then I'm going to give you that reference point to be able to, you know, further, for further study for those of you that are just so inspired. All right, so um, back to this idea of eternal functional submission or subordination. Uh, Michael Riccardi, 
who is uh, from Master Seminary and Grace Community Church. I, 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 again, I am not an expert here, and there is so much material on this subject that I have not read. But, but of what I have read, I'm, I believe that Michael Riccardi's sort of treatment of this whole matter is the clearest, most cogent, most accessible treatment of, of this, whole, this whole debate. Um, and so I'm going to give you a, a, a link to a seminar that he taught in just a minute. Not a link, but a, a, a title, so you can, you can look it up. But he comes at this from a, a few sort of questions, and I'm very quickly summarizing how he sort of uh, coalesced this into what I think is a sound understanding and view. He asked the question, what is submission? If we're talking about the concept of eternal submission, well, what are we talking about when we're talking about submission? And he would say that submission is the subjection of one will to another. It's pretty standard. That's what submission is. Submission involves a subjection of one will to the will of another. If, then, submission is the subjection of one will to another, then submission requires multiple faculties of will. There, there has to be two wills involved. One that's saying, I will this, and the other one that's saying, my will is to submit my will to your will. There has to be multiple faculties of will involved. And then he asked the question, is will a property of person, or is will a property of nature? Is will a property of person, or is will a property of nature? Now think again of how we sort of generally understand the Trinity. One God, co-equal and distinct in three persons. This concept of personhood, the personhood of the Father, the personhood of the Son, the personhood of the Spirit. Then you ask the question, is will a property of person or is it a property of nature? If we conclude that will is a property essentially, fundamentally, of person, then we would have to then conclude that in the eternal Godhead, in the three persons of the Godhead, there are not only three distinct natures or three distinct functions, but there are three distinct wills. So there is the independent, completely autonomous, fully eternal will of the Father that is distinct from the fully autonomous and fully distinct and completely eternal will of the Son and accordingly that of the Spirit. Three distinct wills if will is a property of person. But if it's a property of nature, then you could say, in the Godhead... There are three persons with distinct function, but one will. There is only the will of God in the eternal triune Godhead. Will is a property of nature, Riccardi would argue, and I would agree. Will is not a property of person, but a property of nature. Now, if there are two wills, That would require, if that conclusion is true, if there are two wills, then that would require two natures. Okay? How many divine persons are in the Godhead? Three. How many divine wills are in the Godhead? One. How many wills are in the incarnate Son? Two. Because there are two natures. That is the substance of the incarnation, that God became man. And then you get into the principles of the atonement. If God did not take on his, his, on his divine nature, a human nature, then in his substitutionary atonement, human nature is unredeemed. In order for God to be a fully satisfactory 
substitutionary sacrifice for sin such that the fullness of man in his personhood and in his nature could be redeemed and fully stand righteous in Christ before God, it would require Christ to take on a human nature. He already had in his eternal existence as the eternal son a divine nature. He took on a human nature. And so what you see working out in the, the redemptive work of Christ as revealed in the, in the, in the, on the pages of Scripture is the exercise of submission of his human will to the divine will of the Father. Because will is a product of nature, not of person. The Son submits his human will to the divine will of the Father. And as 1 Peter says, that he, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, which involves the ongoing redemption of our will, which is a product of our nature, that he, he bore all of this on the tree, that by his wounds you have been healed. Gregory of Nazanaeus would say this, that which is not assumed is not healed. If Jesus did not assume a human nature, then our fallen and corrupt human nature is not healed by the wounds of Christ on the cross. So that's it. It's 1033. Uh, I think you should probably understand it right now, right? It's all clear. Here's what I want. I'll just give you a title. And these people are probably wanting to beat down the door now. So this is um, Mike Riccardi, R-I-C-C-A-R-D-I. The seminar is called Pursuing Unity on Triunity. Pursuing Unity on Triunity, and it is a seminar that's available on YouTube. And, and again, I, it's really good, and it goes much deeper, but it's also very accessible. So, All right, we got to go. Let's pray, and we'll be dismissed.